You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org. Good morning. Uh, so we are, thank you, uh, we're wrapping up our Rethinking the Bible series today, and uh, that is by Rethinking Christmas. I feel like Lee set me up to just ruin everybody's idea of Christmas. So I promise it's not going to be that bad. <laughs> and, but there's a little bit of that. Um, so the Christmas story, I mean, it's, it's, it's massively central, isn't it, to Christian faith. And it's one that we, we feel we know really well. But do we really know it? So inspired by our amazing young people last week, I thought we'd kick things off with a little bit of a true or false quiz. Only like four questions just to sort of kick things off. So I'll read a fact out and then I'll get you to put your hand up if you think it's true and then hand up if you think it's false so that you can do that thing where you look around and see how many other people think it's true. And if it's not that many, then, you know. Um, yeah, and if you're watching the live stream, please do uh, join in as well. Okay, so are we ready? Fact number one, nice easy one to kick us off. Jesus was born on the 25th of December. Hands up if you think that's true. Hands up if you think it's false. Wow, good. Full 10 points. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing points. <laughs> um, maximum amount of points awarded. Yeah, so actually nobody knows um, the day, month, uh, or even season that Jesus was born in. And the date of December the 25th wasn't actually decided upon until the middle of the 300s. And before then, Christians actually celebrated Jesus' birth at all different times. Um, March, April, May, November. Uh, but it was around the year 350 that somebody called Pope Julius in Rome declared December the 25th as the date, integrating it with a Roman winter solstice festival. And that festival was all about celebrating the birthday of the sun, S-U-N. So yeah, nice little play on words that it then became about the birthday of the son of God. Okay, number two, uh, we don't know how many wise men there were. Hands up if you think that's true. We don't know how many wise men there were. Okay, anybody think it's false? A couple of brave people go against the grain. It is true. (laughs) Um, The Gospels don't actually mention the number um, of wise men that visited Jesus. It's only guessed at that there were three based on another um, Old Testament verse. Okay, next one. There was no star present at the birth of Jesus. Hands up if you think that's true. Yeah, there was no star present at the birth of Jesus. True. Who thinks that's false? Oh, we've got a lot of fences. It's true. So the star actually guided the Magi, a wise men, but there's no mention of a star above Jesus' manger or actually during his birth. There you go. Uh, And the last one, Mary didn't travel on a donkey. Mary didn't travel on a donkey. Is that true? Hands up for those who think it's true. How do you think it's false? Okay, it is true. So there's no mention of this in either gospel account of the Christmas story. Um, So yeah, hopefully I haven't ruined everybody's Christmas too much by those. (laughs) I'll ease you in gently with a quiz. (laughs) Um, So yeah, we we think we know the story, don't we? But actually so much of what we know has changed over the years. It's kind of been added to uh, by maybe, you know, popular culture or misinterpretation um, and, you know, Christmas traditions that we have. And also I would would add the depiction of the nativity in the movie Love Actually, which contained an octopus and more than one lobster. 
<laughs> Still the greatest Christmas movie. Anyway, let's not go there. Uh, so today, <laughs> I kind of want to look um, at three areas, I think. So text and context. Um, so, you know, what do we actually know about the Christmas stories from looking at the two accounts that are in um, the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, why that matters, and then what it means. So I should add that because of the time I've got this morning, as ever, I'm not, you know, I'm not going to be able to cover absolutely everything. But if you're interested in this stuff and you want to know more, then you absolutely must read The First Christmas by a theologian called Marcus Borg, which is absolutely brilliant. Marcus Borg is a progressive theologian. I really love his stuff. But um, this is all about uh, The First Christmas. And so most of the content of this talk is from that book. So thank you, Marcus Borg. And if you want more, do, um, do have a look at that. It's a really accessible book, actually. Okay, so let's kick off with the text and the context. So what do we know for sure about the Christmas story and about the two accounts we have of it in Matthew and Luke? And, you know, importantly as well, what kind of world was it when these stories were told? So this bit is going to be a bit Bible study-like. So if that's your thing, you'll be like, woohoo. But if it's not your thing, can I encourage you to still try and tune in? (laughs) Because actually um, all of the sort of text and context stuff for me just makes the application and meaning stuff so much more powerful. So we'll do a bit of harder work at the beginning but it's going to be worth it for what we'll kind of draw out towards the end. So Matthew and Luke's accounts are quite different from one another and if you read those um, yeah in those books you you'll see for yourself and I would encourage you at some point this Christmas it's just a good thing to do. I was like I'm doing a talk maybe I should actually read the accounts of the Christmas story in the Bible but it's just something that kind of gets lost isn't it but I just try and take some time over the next week maybe to just sit down and read them and, and read them for yourself. So Matthew's is much shorter than Luke's and Matthew's account actually doesn't really focus much on Jesus. So in his narrative, for example, there's no journey to Bethlehem, there's no story of the birth, there's no angels singing in the night sky, there's no shepherds coming to adore him, you know, none of that. That is all in Luke's gospel. And Matthew's very focused on Joseph, actually, and his perspective. So it's quite a patriarchal kind of telling of the story. And there are lots of other differences in their stories as well. So, for example, in Luke's story, Mary and Joseph live in Nazareth in Galilee, where Mary has become pregnant by the Spirit. And then when it's almost time for her to give birth, they then travel to Bethlehem. But in Matthew, Mary and Joseph live in Bethlehem, where Jesus is born at home. So that's quite a difference, isn't it? And Nazareth only becomes their home when when they return from Egypt after Herod's death. And both Matthew and Luke have these um, genealogies, you know, where it's like so-and-so is the son of so-and-so and and it kind of goes down and you think, ugh, um, do I have to read that? It's like two chapters long. Um, But they are important and they're there for a reason. But they're very different in Matthew and Luke. And Marcus Borg argues that they should be taken as parabolic, not historical. So it's more about the meaning of what they're trying to communicate through these genealogies rather than them being sort of accurate factually. So Luke draws a deliberate link between Jesus and Adam, as in Adam off of Genesis 1, uh, to sort of show that in Jesus there is the start of a new creation. It's all about this changed and transfigured earth that's going to come because of Jesus. And for Matthew, Jesus is actually the new Moses. So he's, he copies a lot of the language, and we'll get to that in a bit, um, sort of that, you know, he's the new Moses and he's called to deliver God's people from oppression and destruction, sort of similar to the calling that Moses had to save the Israelites from slavery in Egypt. 
Um, both accounts, again, this is a Marcus Borg perspective, um, he thinks that people basically usually get too obsessed over whether it's fact or fable, and he says parable is a much better way to understand it. So there are lots of historical inaccuracies. So there's no evidence of there being any kind of worldwide census or ordered by Caesar Augustus. You won't find um, a record of that in Roman history. But does that massively matter? And actually, again, Bar Borg argues it doesn't matter. That actually these stories are not really about facts, they're about meaning and what these writers are trying to draw out from what they're focusing on and the way they tell the stories. And so both Matthew and Luke tell those stories in different ways um, to emphasise those different meanings. So maybe let's have a quick look at, at that now. So I said, and I kind of hinted at before, that Matthew, there's this huge parallel. So if you look at um, like the birth of Jesus in Matthew chapters 1 to 2, and then you look at the birth of Moses in Exodus chapter 1 to 2, they're really similar. So both have this big bad sort of evil ruler that seeks to kill um, newborn Jewish males um, to eradicate this threat of this kind of predestined child that's going to come and, and do something amazing. And that is then saved by divine intervention. So that's the case in both stories so that's because Matthew is trying to show us that Jesus is this new Moses Herod the king at the time was the new pharaoh and that's the, the sort of picture that he's trying to paint and Matthew uses patterns to illustrate those links so for example he tells of five divine dreams and five like prophecies or fulfillments of old testament scripture so why fives? Why does he like the number five? We've all got a favourite number, haven't we? And I think if it, if it was... Matthew had a favourite number, I think it would be five, but there's a reason for that. So um, there's a few different uh, reasons, a few different arguments as to why that is, but maybe it's because the law of Moses was contained mostly in the Pentateuch, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, and Pentateuch literally just means five scrolls. So again, Matthew's trying to use that number to sort of point us to essentially this being, you know, the new, the new law, I guess, the new Moses, Mount Sinai, um, you know, it, it's kind of this happening again, but this kind of new version, this new kingdom, this new creation. Okay, so Luke, um, is, his focus is totally different. So Luke is all about women, the marginalised and the Holy Spirit and the role of the Holy Spirit. So in his birth narrative, the focus is completely on Mary and he profiles the role of women in every part of his gospel. Can't guess which one's my favourite. Um, and Luke constantly just always brings things back to the poor, to outcasts, to people that have been rejected or pushed out by society. So a quick example of that, you know, the sort of angelic announcement is made not to wise men, but to shepherds. And at the time, shepherds would have been seen as a, you know, a lower class, a quite a marginalised people group. So some stuff about those those original stories, but and before we perhaps jump into some of the meaning of that again, um, I think there's some really key things about the context that I think, yeah, it's really important to, to understand. So firstly, it's really good to know that there was just this like clash of kingdoms, these these this clash of two kingdoms in particular. So this is um this is from Borg's book, The First Christmas. Rome inherited from Greece the idea that world history would involve five great ages or kingdoms. The fifth kingdom would be, in other words, the last climactic kingdom of the whole world. Where else have we heard that number recently? Matthew. So he talks in fives, and yeah, we'll come back to that. But interesting. 
So historians at the time wrote about how the first four kingdoms of the world had sort of already come and gone, if you like, and the Roman Empire was the fifth and final kingdom. And the titles of the Roman emperor, which was Caesar Augustus, some of the, the titles that were used to describe him, I'll read out some of them, were divine, son of God, God, God from God, Lord, Redeemer, Liberator, and, wait for it, Saviour of the world. So Caesar was seen as a ruler appointed by the gods to bring uh, what was described as peace through victory. And remember that phrase because that's important too. So again, where have we heard those titles before? Who uses those words to describe someone else? Well, the gospel writers do. And to use them at the time of anyone else other than the Roman emperor would have been no less than high treason. So to say that there's a new, a saviour of the world, a lord, you know, a god that isn't the Roman emperor um, was a really controversial, subversive, countercultural, risky thing to do. So that's kind of how the Roman Empire sort of works. You know, you worship the gods, you go to war with their assistance and you're victorious with their help and you obtain this peace through victory. And that really kind of means, I guess, false peace, really. It's kind of peace through war, you know, peace through violence. Um, and that's actually still happening today. It really made me think when I was playing this of the whole, you know, Ukraine-Russia situation, you know, that there's this narrative, isn't there, of, of Russia going in and bringing peace, you know, peace through victory, that they'll conquer these areas Areas that should have been Russian. I mean, that's, I won't get into the. <laughs> it's very complicated. I'm, yeah, no limited amounts. But um, the sort of some of the propaganda and this, the narrative that's being said about this is this is about bringing peace. This is a special military operation, you know, um, and actually, it, all it's doing is bringing more war and more violence and more oppression. And the Christmas story is is relevant here because it is that subversive story of resistance to this empire. You know, a story of a fifth and alternative kingdom that doesn't achieve peace through violence and victory, but peace through non-violence and justice. So let's talk about that kingdom. So you may have heard the word or the phrase eschatology um, before, and it's a, it's a kind of word used in Christian theology. It comes from the Greek, and um, that means last things. So yeah, within Christian theology, this is all about kind of, I guess, what happens at the end, you know, the final, um, God's vision, I guess, for that, that fifth and final kingdom or the kingdom of God. And Christians maybe, I think, have, have distorted this a little bit in that we think it's like, you know, some some kind of Christian traditions have sort of said, oh, that's when, you know, the earth will eventually just be completely destroyed and we'll all go to heaven and sit on clouds and it'll be lovely. But actually, um, that isn't what it means. It's actually not about the destruction of the earth, but about the resurrection and the restoration of the earth. In fact, Marcus Borg has this great phrase, he calls it the great divine cleanup, which I really like. Um, and this great divine cleanup or fifth and final kingdom is talked about throughout scripture. It's something that is a theme throughout, right from the Old Testament onwards and there was an expectation among Jews that there would be a messiah or an anointed one a chosen one who would essentially act as a kind of new king that would begin or bring about this kingdom or eschaton and both gospel writers in their own way point to Jesus being this messiah so the one who announces the beginning of this fifth and final kingdom a kingdom that brings peace through justice and Matthew uses the word messiah guess how many times Five. Excellent. Again, points for whoever said that. <laughs> Five times to describe Jesus in his like infancy narrative. So when he's talking about Jesus um, as an infant, he yeah uses that word Messiah five times. So think about maybe what he's trying to say through that. So 
the summary of that is probably this, that there are two kingdoms. One is about empire, and empire promises peace through victory or violent force. And eschaton is this idea of peace through non-violent justice. And Jesus is the Messiah that comes to announce the beginning or the coming of this kingdom. And those two kingdoms continue to fight and clash against each other today. Right, is everyone still awake? Well done. <laughs> okay, so we've done text, we've done context. We probably covered, I think, a bit of why it matters already. Um, so we'll jump into, yeah, a bit more of sort of what it means. So, I mean, it's all good stuff, isn't it? But this is the really good stuff. And there's so much of it, I've had to sort of just try and pick a few of the like coolest things. But yeah, there's more. So do, um, do go and have a look at the book. Uh, so firstly, the coming of Jesus. So the, the Christmas story and the words of the angel in Luke chapter two is good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And the angel announces this to shepherds. So again, you know, lowly, marginalised shepherds. And also in Luke 2, Simeon echoes this phrase as he sort of takes the infant Jesus in, in his arms in the same chapter of Luke and says something like salvation has been prepared in the presence of all peoples. So, and again, salvation being this much bigger idea of wholeness and healing and shalom and life in all its fullness, you know, not kind of getting saved, going to heaven, which I think has been our, our understanding of it sometimes within Christian traditions. But it's everything as it should be, you know, everything as it was planned, life in all its fullness. And Matthew also tells us this by his description of the wise men or the magi that visited Jesus. So magi is actually where we get the word magician from, but magis were, were more than just sort of, you know, um, sorcerers or um, magicians or astrologers, as some people say that they were. So they, they were seen as kind of religious figures, I guess, in, like in touch with another reality, sort of possessing a kind of secret wisdom. And Matthew describes them as from the east, it's a bit like we say, like, from the north, uh, which is basically a sort of another way of saying that they weren't Jews, you know, they were Gentiles. So all that tells us that this kingdom, this kingdom of God, this fifth and final kingdom, this kingdom is for the pushed out, the marginalised, the rejected, the forgotten ones. But actually more than that, this kingdom is for everyone, all peoples, you know, everyone is invited and everyone is included. Another huge meaning in the Christmas stories is about light and darkness. And we talked about these two kingdoms clashing with one another, didn't we? And, and that, I think, a good way to understand that is a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of light. So if you read through the Christmas stories, you'll notice that light is everywhere. You know, you've got a star in the sky guiding the Magi to Jesus. You've got a night sky filled with light as the angels announce the news of Jesus' birth to the shepherds. And Luke even says that Jesus is a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. And actually, you know, even symbolically, Jesus is born in this winter solstice, isn't he? They've got Roman festival, sort of deepest darkness in the middle of the night in a winter. Um, and, it, you know, not historically, again, accurately, but, you know, as metaphorically as we celebrate it now. Um, and I, st I still love that thing that, you know, the birthday of the sun becomes the birthday of the sun. Um, you know, the kind of the greatest light um, in the deepest darkness. And again, a bit of context here. Good to sort of imagine, you know, how dark it must have got in the ancient world. So I don't know if you've ever kind of gone somewhere super rural and, you know, suddenly you see the stars because there's so much less artificial light and it's incredible. Um, but when it gets really, really dark, it's something that we don't experience lots of, I think particularly in a city, because there's so much light all the time. You know, there was no, and, it, and that was the case in, um, that wasn't the case in the ancient world. You know, it, it would have got really dark. There was no electricity, you know, no big cities that never sleep and sort of 
have 24-7 light all the time. And actually, even as, as history went on, you know, most people couldn't afford candles until um, like around the 1800s. So you can see why darkness, light and darkness are such key themes, and um, particularly within religious history. And they've always been, um, you know, uh, darkness and light have been used to symbolise different things. So darkness has been this sort of symbol of, you know, like limited vision or not being able to, to see properly, being vulnerable to danger or harm, you know, being a bit asleep or unaware of something, being unfruitful or, um, you know, even kind of mourning grief and death. But light, uh, religious traditions are filled with this language of light, you know, enlightenment, seeing, waking up, visions and epiphanies. And, you know, linking that right back to creation. So actually God saying, let there be light was the very first thing. It was his first creative act. And it's also, um, you know, quite often it's symbolic, isn't it? Of like God's presence or God's guidance. So think of like the burning bush and the Israelites were led by a pillar of light. You know, there's verses that talk about his word as a lamp to our path, you know, lighting the way, showing us where to walk and what to do. God with us, alongside us, um, yet yeah, illuminating up the path, showing where we, we should go. So Christmas at its heart is a reminder of Jesus as a light that shines in that deepest, deepest, blackest darkness. John 1 verse 5 says, The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. So no matter how dark it gets, no matter how much we stumble, no matter how much in danger or sorrow or grief we feel, there is this light that shines and warms and illuminates us, reveals the way for us to walk and helps us to see what we couldn't see in darkness. Okay, so we're going to go back to this idea of these two clashing kingdoms again. So we said, didn't we, you know, that, that kingdom of peace through victory, of dominance and violence and control and submission, and then that kingdom of peace through justice, of shalom, of wholeness, of a restored and transfigured earth, that great divine cleanup. And I, th I think Christmas, and it, well, every day really, but particularly Christmas, I think is a reminder of that invitation to choose, you know, to choose which kingdom we, we want to be part of. And then, you know, I get that sometimes a lot of this language around empire and kingdom, and it's problematic in itself, isn't it? Particularly for us in 2022, um, you know, I don't like using the language of war and kingdoms and kings, and, but that's, that was the context at the time, and that's why some of this language is, is important to understand. But we essentially do have that choice, you know, which path do we walk, which kingdom do we align ourselves, which Lord is our Lord? Um, yeah, is it the kingdom of darkness or the kingdom of light? Is it peace through victory or is it peace through justice? And in the New Testament, the, the root of the Greek word translated as repent, which is always a word that makes me go, I just feel like someone's telling me off when I heard the word repent. But actually, when you know what it means, it's, it's an amazing word. So yeah, um, the root of that word means to go beyond the mind that you have. So it's all about entering a kind of new way of seeing, a new mindset. So to repent means to just rethink, to see things differently. Perhaps another little nice take on our Rethinking the Bible series. So I, I love that in Matthew's Gospel, um, after the wise men or magi visited Jesus, it says they went home by another road, so they no longer walked the same path, but they followed another way. And I think that's really, that little metaphor is lovely, isn't it? You know, we change our minds, we're, we're transformed, we're a new creation. And I think there's always this endless invitation, you know, of boundless love and grace to walk a better way, to change our minds, to be part of this kingdom of light, you know, to rethink something. 
And I don't think that's something that we do once. You know, I don't think it's something you pray the prayer and then you're in and it's fine. You know, I think that's something that I find I'm having to do on a daily basis to make those choices. Um, yeah, it's something that we're invited to do always as we continue to travel that path towards wholeness and shalom and working out what that means. And actually that, that idea of wholeness and shalom is something we're going to be looking at um, in our speaking series in the spring. And um, I think finally, probably the coolest thing about this fifth and final kingdom, I think, is, is how it comes about. So we can look at our world, can't we, and say, well, that's great. You know, you're probably thinking that's lovely, Joe. The kingdom of light, yes, but the world is in a mess. You know, there's all these situations we, which we could mention. This great divine cleanup doesn't really seem to have happened much yet, does it? And that, I think, is part of this mystery of what Christians call the now and not yet. You know, this fifth and final kingdom is, is kind of here, but it's kind of not. Um, it's, you know, we see glimpses of it, but actually we still long for it to really happen in all its fullness. And so the question is like, for me, is like, okay, well, how do we, how do we do that? How do we get there? You know, how do we actually see it sort of happen in full? And I love the way that Marcus Borg describes as he calls it participatory eschatology, um, which is basically just, um, you know, because we, remember we talked about eschatology as sort of being like the last things, the final kingdom, this great sort of divine cleanup, restoring the earth. Well, God actually chooses to do that with and through us, each one of us. That's how this kingdom happens. He's not just going to like zap everybody one day. Um, you know, it happens through and in us. And then St. Augustine puts it like this, which I think is just such a, a wonderful phrase. So God without us will not, we without God cannot. So God chooses to involve us in the coming of this kingdom, in bringing about this kingdom. And we obviously without God cannot, so it's a partnership. And this struggle between these two kingdoms, it still battles on. So that's both within us personally and within our world. And I think, you know, it, it can feel sometimes, can't it, like we're losing, you know, that things are getting worse, that the darkness is just too dark and overwhelming. But that's when something like Christmas reminds us that this light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. The New Testament writers talk about this kingdom of God using metaphors, things like yeast in bread and mustard seed. You know, it's these little things that add up. It's things that don't maybe look that impressive, but actually have this absolutely massive impact. And that means, you know, little you and me making tough choices, doing what we think is right, giving our time, our money, our energy. It's checking in on that friend that's been on your mind. It's chatting to someone at the living room, helping them feel safe and welcome. It's not joining in with that gossip at work about a colleague. It's helping one of our pantry members find the food they need. It's letting someone pull out in queuing traffic. It's going to therapy and working on your own stuff so it doesn't hurt others. It's sending that text message telling someone how brilliant they are because you know they don't really hear that from anyone else. It's buying a meal for a family with a baby in NICU. It's showing up outside the rushed wedding of a friend whose new husband is dying of cancer and showering them in confetti and love. And that's something that our pantry volunteers got to do this week. You know, that, that's it for me. That's the kingdom. You know, that's what it means to be light in darkness. It's those little things, little things that add together, that ripple and spark and ignite until there's so much light, there just can't be darkness anymore. And that begins with Christmas, with a God who became flesh and blood and moved into the neighbourhood, as the message version puts it. You know, who entered the world in vulnerability and poverty to reveal his presence with us. So don't ever let anyone convince you that darkness is winning, because it isn't. 
and let's keep going. Let's keep being light bringers wherever we go in the confident assurance that the kingdom of God is here. It's now and not yet. It's in our midst and it's on its way. And I'll finish with this from Matthew 5, 14 to 16. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Keep going, keep shining, keep bringing God's kingdom to earth. It's working, even if you can't see it and it's making a difference, even if you don't believe it. And may this Christmas be a reminder of that for all of us. You're listening to a podcast from Oasis Church Bath. To find out more about us, visit our website at www.oasisbath.org.